0: Adapted for podcast by Fermat's Last Theater, Madison, Wisconsin. Heaven knew Marshall McCann never went to concerts. To be mounted upon the stage of Pittsburgh's Carnegie Music Hall in this fashion, beside Mrs. McCann and her old school friend Mrs. Post, as if he were a crank from Sewickley or some unfortunate with a musical wife, was ludicrous. His wife, too, was a sensible person. The daughter of an old Pittsburgh family as solid and well-rooted as the McCanns. She would never have bothered him about this concert had not the meddlesome Mrs. Post arrived for a visit.
1: A man goes to concerts when he's courting, while he's a junior partner. When he becomes a person of substance, he stops that sort of nonsense.
0: Because Mrs. Post lived in Cincinnati, she was always keeping up with the world and talking about things in which no one else was interested, music among them. She delivered weighty opinions in a voice like a jovial bassoon. She had arrived only yesterday, and at dinner had declared,
2: Kitty Ayrshire sings at the Carnegie Music Hall tomorrow evening. It's the sort of
0: thing one simply cannot afford to miss. When McCann went to his office in the morning, he called the music hall, and found that Kitty Ayrshire's recital was sold out. He telephoned his wife to that effect, and thinking he had settled the matter, made his reservation on the 11.25 p.m. train for New York. He had not meant to go until next week, but he preferred to be absent during Mrs. Post's incumbency. But soon enough, his wife called him back. The enterprising Mrs. Post had discovered that 200 folding chairs were to be placed on the stage of the concert hall behind the piano, and they were on sale at this moment.
2: Please get three seats
0: in the front row, Mrs. McCann commanded.
1: I'm taking the late train to New York. Uh, May I be excused from this pleasure? You
0: may not, Mrs.
1: McCann declared.
2: Mrs. Post and I have no intention of trailing up to the stage unattended. Afterward, you can take a taxi to the train station.
0: So here sat McCann, surrounded by a lot of music students and excitable old maids. And he had to face the large audience, most of whom knew him, and all of whom sat in comfortable seats. Only the desperately zealous or the morbidly curious would endure two hours in these tiny wooden chairs, hot and cramped, blinded by the footlights. Somehow he had become party to a transaction for which he felt the utmost
1: contempt. The one time Mrs. McCann and I went to Paris, this Ayrshire woman was singing at the Camique, and I wouldn't go hear her. Even in Paris, where there's nothing any better to do. She was always being thrust in an American's face as if she were something to be proud of. Those people named perfumes after her. And petticoats and cutlets.
0: Suddenly, the door at his right elbow opened. The singer's velvet train brushed against his trousers as she passed him, and he looked up at her, offended. He had not foreseen that she would walk over him every time she entered or exited. The opening applause was far from overwhelming. Kitty's audience was accustomed to a dignified concert gown, like one that a matron would wear to her daughter's coming out tea. Kitty's was really quite outrageous. A yard or two of velvet in a shrieking green that would have made a fright of any woman who did not possess inextinguishable beauty. The skirts split back from a transparent gold lace petticoat, gold stockings, gold slippers. The narrow train kept curling about her feet like a serpent's tail, turning up its gold lining as if it were squirming over on its back. It was not, Pittsburgh felt, a costume in which to sing Handel. Kitty felt the chill in the air and it amused her. She liked to be thought a brilliant artist by other artists, but by the world at large, she liked to be thought a daring creature.
2: To shock the crowd is the surest way to get its money. Nobody ever becomes a household word by being an artist, and you're not a thoroughly paying proposition until your name means something on the sidewalk and in the barber shop. I will give them such a concert as cannot often be heard for money.
0: Kitty nodded gaily to the young man at the piano, fell into an attitude of seriousness, and began a group of songs by Mozart and Handel. During her first song, McCann stared coldly up at the balconies. During the second, he began to glance cautiously at the green apparition before him. He cleverly classed all singers, especially operatic ones, as fat Dutch women or shifty sadies, and Kitty would not fit into either category. She displayed the only kind of figure he considered worth looking at, that of a young woman, quicksilverish, with thin, eager shoulders and polished white arms. McCann found it agreeable enough to look at Kitty, but when he noticed Mrs. Post, appraising the singer through her lorgnette, red as a turkey cock with opinions she was bursting to impart, he looked indifferently out into the house again. When he felt for his watch, his wife touched him warningly with her elbow, which, he noticed, was not at all like Kitty's. Though McCann would not have admitted it, a great many people in the hall actually knew what the prodigal daughter of their country was singing, and how well she was singing it. They thawed gradually under the beauty of her voice and the subtlety of her interpretation. She had seldom sung in concert, and they had supposed her dependent upon the accessories of opera. Refined artistry was not what they expected. They even began to feel the wayward charm of her personality. When Miss Ayrshire finished her first group of songs, the audience expressed guarded approval. She smiled bewitchingly upon the people in front of her, and, after her careless bows, retreated to the stage door. As she passed McCann, she again brushed lightly against him, and this time she paused long enough to glance down at him and murmur, Pardon? The moment her bright, curious eyes rested upon him, McCann saw himself as if she were holding a mirror up to him a solid figure and a florid face, well-visored with good living and sane opinions, a kind of pressed brick and cement face upon which the years had made no mark, a face in which cocktails might eventually blast out a few hollows. He had never seen himself so distinctly in his shaving glass as he did in that instant. After her prehensile train curled over his boot and she was gone, His wife turned to him and said, in a tone of moderate approbation,
2: Very gracious of her,
0: I'm sure. Mrs. Post nodded oracularly. McCann grunted. Kitty's second set, made up of romantic German songs, was altogether more her affair than the first. When she turned once to acknowledge the applause behind her, she caught McCann yawning behind his hand, and he saw her frown a little. Rather than embarrass him, this somehow made him feel important. Walking past after the second part of the program, she again looked him over curiously and took marked precaution that her dress did not touch him. His wife and Mrs. Post again remarked upon her consideration. The final set was made up of modern French songs, which Kitty sang enchantingly. At last, she had her way with her frigid public. While she was coming back again and again to smile and curtsy, McCann whispered to his companions,
1: If she has encores in store, I'd better make a dash for my train.
2: Not at all,
0: cried Mrs.
2: Post. Miss Irishire sings in Faust at the Metropolitan tomorrow night. She'll be taking the same train as you.
0: McCann once more told himself how sorry he felt for Mr. Post. At last Miss Ayrshire gave the people what they wanted, the most popular aria from the French opera written for her and to her and round about her by a veteran French composer who greatly admired her, the last and not the palest flash of his creative fire. Though her audience clamored for more, she was not to be coerced, she who had stood unyielding through storms to which this was a summer breeze. She shrugged, blew them a kiss, and saved her last smile for that uncomfortable part of her audience seated behind her. As she nodded goodnight to the wooden chairs, she looked with recognition at McCann and his ladies. After hurrying these ladies into a taxi, McCann went over to the Shenley for a glass of beer and a rarebit before his train.
1: I have to admit, I wasn't as bored as I'd expected. Of course, the cream of Pittsburgh were ridiculous pretending to be uplifted by her. But the minx herself was all right. I've no rooted dislike for pretty women. Gay girls have their place in the world, but they ought to be kept in that place.
0: His equanimity restored by his light supper, McCann lit a big cigar, got into his taxi, and bowled off through the dark, silent streets toward his train. At eleven o'clock, no restless feet were abroad. The ice glittered on the pavement and on the naked trees. The rows of comfortable houses looked as safe from the troublesome bubble of life as the Allegheny Cemetery. Suddenly the cab stopped. McCann thrust his head out the window. A young woman stood in the middle of the street addressing his driver excitedly in broken English. An electric streetcar stood nearby despondent in the sleet. The young woman, her cloak blowing about her, turned from the driver to McCann himself.
2: Could you be so kind as to help us? It is Miss Ayrshire, the singer. The juice is gone out and we must get to the station. Mademoiselle cannot miss the train. She sings tomorrow night in New York. Could you not take us?
0: McCann threw away his cigar and followed the maid to the streetcar. Miss Ayrshire, who had never doubted that a rescuer would be forthcoming, moved deliberately. Out of a whirl of skirts she thrust one fur topped boot. By the street lamp, a can saw a flash of gold stocking and alighted.
2: So kind of you, so fortunate for us.
0: She placed one hand on his sleeve. With the other, she guarded an armful of roses that had been sent up to the concert stage. As she picked her way along, the petals showered upon the sooty pavement. They would be lying there in the morning for people to wonder if there had been a funeral. The maid followed with two leather bags. As soon as McCann had lifted Kitty into his cab, she exclaimed,
2: "'I've forgotten my jewel case back in the car. Please. I am so
0: careless.' McCann dashed back, ran his hand along the cushions, and discovered a small leather bag. When he returned, he found the maid and the luggage bestowed on the front seat, and a place left for him on the back seat beside Kitty and her flowers.
2: "'I hope we shan't be taking you far out of your way. I have no idea where the station is. I'm not even sure of the name. Something about Liberty?' A bohemian quarter, perhaps, where the law relaxes a trifle?
1: I don't believe the name refers to that kind of liberty. So
2: much the better. Out in California, when we call a place Liberty Hill or Liberty Hollow, well, we mean it. And now you will excuse me? I must not talk after such a long program.
0: She lay back in her corner and closed her eyes. When the cab rolled down the incline at East Liberty Station... The New York Express was whistling in. A porter opened the door. McCann sprang
1: out and gave him a claim check. Get this bag of the check stand and rush it onto that train.
0: Miss Ayrshire, having gathered up her flowers, put out her hand to take McCann's arm and recognized
1: him at last.
2: Why, it's you!
0: We must hurry, Miss
1: Ayrshire, if you mean to catch that train. Uh, Can you run? Can I run? Try me.
0: As they raced through the tunnel and up the inside stairway, McCann realized that he had never before made a dash with someone so quick and sure beside him. The white furred boots chased each other like lambs at play, the gold stockings flashed like bicycle spokes in the sun. When they reached the door of Miss Ayrshire's stateroom, McCann was embarrassed at the way he was panting, for Kitty's breathing was as soft and regular as when she had reclined on the back seat of his taxi. But weren't all these stage women supposed to be unsound creatures, like canaries kept in a cage and stuffed with song restorer?
2: Thank you again, Mr.
0: Uh, McCann, Marshal. Kitty nodded good night and went into the stateroom. McCann found his bag on the seat closest to her door. When he lifted it, he was surprised how heavy it felt. Suddenly he realized how much he was looking forward to a few hours' sleep. He set his bag back down on the seat and looked around vaguely for his berth. The door of the stateroom opened and Kitty Ayrshire came back out.
2: I find I need someone to talk to. I'm always wakeful after I sing and Celine and I get so tired of each other. You and I can speak very low and we won't disturb anyone.
0: Reclining carelessly in the seat, she crossed her feet and rested her elbow on his bag. She had replaced her boots with gold slippers and, he thanked heaven, had exchanged her concert gown for a very demure black velvet thing with some sort of pearl trimming about the neck. He sat down stiffly on the seat opposite hers.
2: Isn't it funny that you happened to pick me up? I wanted a word with you.
0: Mccann
1: smiled in a way that meant he wasn't being taken in. Did you? We are not very old acquaintances.
2: True. But you disapproved of me tonight, and I thought I sang quite well. You are very critical in such matters.
1: My dear young lady, I am not critical at all. I know nothing about such matters.
2: And care less. Well, then we know where we are. But did my gown displease you? It may seem a little outré here, but it's what all the imaginative designers abroad are doing. And somebody has to be a missionary to America. You like the English sort of concert gown better?
1: About gowns, I know even less than about music. I looked uncomfortable because I was uncomfortable. The stage was hot, the chairs minuscule, and the lights annoying.
2: I was sorry they sold those seats. I don't like to make people uncomfortable. Did the lights give you a headache? They are very trying. In the end, they burn one's eyes out, I believe.
0: Half-clad Pittsburghers were tramping up and down the aisle, casting sidelong glances at McCann, at his companion.
2: How much better they look with all their clothes on. Mr. McCann, many people are displeased with me at times, but I seldom get a chance to ask them why. You would be really generous if you took the trouble
0: to tell me. She spoke without a shadow of challenge or hauteur. She did not seem to be angling for compliments. McCann decided that since she had asked, he would let her have it. But he found it hard to formulate the grounds of his disapproval. Now that they sat face to face and she leaned against his bag,
1: he had no wish to hurt her. I'm a businessman. I don't much believe in any of you fluffy ruffles people. I distrust you all, the men more than the women. Artists, you mean? What is your business?
2: Coal. I don't distrust businessmen, and I know ever so many. I don't know any coal men, but I think I could become very much interested in coal. Am I larger-minded than you?
1: <laughs> I don't believe you know what it feels like to be very much interested in anything. Your job is an affectation on both sides. Uh, I know a great many of the people who were there tonight. They neither know nor care anything about music. They imagine they do, because it's supposed to be a fine thing.
2: But isn't that so in everything? Your clerks are only honest because that is the rule of good conduct in business. Do you know, I thought you would have something useful to say, but this is a sort of talk I'd expect from your office boy.
0: By now Kitty sat upright. She was the only one of her tribe he had ever seen that he would cross the street to see again. Those were remarkable eyes. Penetrating, restless, somewhat impudent, but not dulled by conceit. Just now they were rather fierce.
1: Then you don't think it's silly that a lot of people get together and pretend to enjoy something they know nothing about?
2: Of course it's silly, but that's how God made audiences. Don't you go to church in the same way? If the congregation had to pass through a machine at the door that measured spiritual belief, not many of you would get to your pews.
1: How do you know
0: I go to church? Oh,
2: you can't evade me like that.
0: She tapped the edge of his seat with the toe of her gold slipper.
2: You glared at me all evening as if you could eat me alive. Now I ask you to state your objections and you criticize my audience? Is it merely that you dislike my personality? In that case, of course, I'll let you alone.
1: No, perhaps I dislike your professional personality. As I told you, I have a natural distrust of your kind.
2: Natural? Why should you naturally dislike singers? Doubtless I should find some cold and repulsive, and you may find some singers so. But I have reason to believe that I'm one of the less repellent.
1: Granted. And I can see you're a shrewd woman to boot. But you are all such light people. Brilliant, some of you, but devoid of depth.
2: Well, some things are meant to go deep and others high. Do you want every woman in the world to be made of cast iron?
1: You feed yourselves on hectic emotions instead of helping to bear the burdens of the world. You're self Oh
2: Yes, not all artists are, but I am. If I could once hear a convincing reason not to be, I might change. As for the burdens of the world, my dear sir, granting that the great majority of people can't enjoy anything keenly, You'll admit that I give pleasure to many more people than you do. And I am presently supporting 18 people. No other family in California ever had as many cripples and hard luckers as the one I had the honor of being born into. The only ones who could take care of themselves were ruined by the San Francisco earthquake some years ago. And I give money and time and effort to talented students. Oh, I give more than that. To the really gifted ones I give my desire, my light, if I have any. And I do that sometimes when I am tired to death. That is like giving one's blood.
0: Kitty threw off her fervor with a slight gesture as if it were a scarf and leaned back in her seat, tucking her slippered feet beside her.
2: If you saw the houses I keep up, the people I employ, the motor cars I run, and I do it with nothing but my voice in this slender frame.
1: She is much like any other charming woman, except that she's more so. Her familiarity feels natural. She's not afraid of me or of herself. Well, I'm not afraid of her either. I can break her in two with my bare hands.
2: Why shouldn't I be self-indulgent when I indulge others? I can't understand your ethics. Now, I think I understand Count Tolstoy's. I talked with him once about his book, What is Art? He believed we can exist only by gratifying appetites, but these are evil and so we are always sad. In some miraculous way, a divine ideal was disclosed to us and gave us a new and higher craving, which we can only satisfy by starving all the others, because the ideal is dearer than any life our appetites can ever attain. One often feels that in art, especially in the greatest of all operas, which because I can never hope to sing, I love more than all the others. Perhaps you agree with Tolstoy?
1: Uh, no. I think he's a crank, an extremist. A
2: weighty word. You'll always have a world full of people who keep to the golden mean. Why bother yourself about me and Tolstoy?
1: I don't. Except when you bother me. Oh,
2: poor man. They dragged you to the concert, didn't they? Those two ladies of yours?
1: Of course.
2: I might have known. Still, your morality seems to me nothing but the compromise of cowardice. When righteousness comes alive and burns, you hate it just as you hate and fear beauty. You want a little of each in your life, perhaps, but sterilized, the sting taken out.
0: McCann studied the toe of her
1: slipper. Uh, uh, I hate that sort of fancy talk. With a woman, everything comes back to one thing. Does it?
2: I wish I knew. I do think people are a good deal alike. You are quite different from anyone I've met lately, but there are a great many more like you at home. And even you, I believe there is a real creature down under these custom-made prejudices that save you the trouble of thinking. If you and I were shipwrecked on an island, you would find that a woman has several qualifications, at least as important as that one you doubtless referred to.
1: Yes, well, of course. I'm not laying down any generalizations. Oh, aren't you?
2: Then I misunderstood. But let me ask you something. Haven't you any weakness? Isn't there any foolish natural thing that unbends you and makes you feel gay?
1: Uh, I like... I like to go fishing. I like the woods and the weather... Playing a fish, working for him, I like the pussy willows, and the cold, and the sky, blue or gray, night coming on, everything about it.
2: And you want to believe that light girls like me only care about shopping and theaters and hotels? And about the one thing that everything comes back to? You amuse me, you and your fish. But I mustn't keep you any longer. "'I've given you every chance to state your case against me, "'and I believe you don't have a case, only a grudge. "'I believe you are envious. "'You wish you were a tenor and a perfect lady-killer.'
0: She rose and then paused with her hand on the door of her stateroom.
2: "'Dream of me tonight, will you? "'Of me and not of either of those ladies who sat beside you at the concert. "'It doesn't matter much whom we live with in this world.' But it matters a great deal whom we dream of. Oh, how deeply he blushes. You are very naive, after all, and so afraid of anything new. I want to try new things, new people, new religions, new miseries even. If only there were more new things. If only you were really new. I might learn something. I'm like the Queen of Sheba. I'm not above learning. But you... My friend, are afraid to try a new breakfast cereal. The world isn't held in place by gravity, but by the lazy cowardice of the people on it. All the same, I'm going to haunt you a little. Adios.
0: McCann slept heavily, as usual, and the porter had to shake him in the morning. Whatever he had been dreaming, he forgot as soon as he sat up in his berth. As he raised the window blind, some bright object in the little hammock over his bed caught the sunlight and glittered. A delicately turned gold slipper.
1: Minx! Hussy! All that tall talk. Probably got it from some man, some hanger-on. Learned it by rote like a parrot. Did she put this thing in here herself last night, or did she send that... "'Sneak-faced Frenchwoman. It's outrageous!'
0: He wondered if he had been breathing loudly when the intruder thrust her head between his curtains. She was conscious that he did not look like Prince Charming in his sleep. Before he stepped into the washroom, he wrapped the slipper in his pajama jacket and thrust it into his bag in case the porter should start to make up the berth in his absence. He escaped from the train without seeing his tormentor again. Later, in his room at the Knickerbocker Hotel, McCann threw the slipper into the wastebasket, but the chambermaid, seeing that it was new and mateless, thought there must be a mistake and placed it in the closet where he found it when he returned from the theater that evening. Considerably mellowed by food and drink and cheerful company, he decided to keep it as a reminder that absurd things could happen to people of the most clock-like deportment. When he got back to Pittsburgh, he stuck the slipper in a lockbox in his vault, safe from prying clerks. McCann has been ill for five years now, poor fellow. He still goes to the only place that interests him, the office. But his partners do most of the work, and his clerks find him sadly changed. Morbid, they call his state of mind. He has had the pine trees in his yard cut down. They reminded him of cemeteries. Alone at the office on Sundays or holidays, he takes his will and his insurance policies out of his lockbox. Sometimes he takes out the tarnished gold slipper and holds it up to the light, turning it over and over in his hand while his essential papers sit there on his desk. When McCann drops over some day, the slipper will puzzle his executors.
2: As for Kitty Arshire, she has played so many jokes since then, practical and otherwise, that she has forgotten the night when she threw away a slipper to be a thorn in the side of a just man.
0: You've been listening to A Gold Slipper by Willa Cather, adapted for podcast by Fermat's Last Theater. Samra Tafara played Miss Kitty Ayrshire. Nick Berevic Hancock played Mr. Marshall McCann. And I'm Alex Hancock for Fermat's Last Theater.